Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know what? War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from sunny Brussels. And I'm Hugh Pope. I'm your co-host also here in Belgium, and I can confirm the sunniness of the day. And with us today are Dr. Liliane Umubieyi, who is Research Coordinator at Avocat Centre Frontier, or Lawyers Without Borders, and Dr. Ama Edo, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and African Studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They work on racial justice activism and movements in Europe and in the United States, and have very recently organized a conference held at the end of March. Talk to us about this conference, and also Welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. This conference came about quite organically. I think Liliane will share a little bit more about the Belgium-focused work that we started doing together. Um, but in the course of that work, we realized that it was really important to actually hear voices from elsewhere in Europe around the colonial past and racial justice, because the start of the Belgium work was the BLM protests in the summer of last year. And so it was an idea at the beginning, just, oh, let's see, I wonder what's happening in France. I wonder what's happening in Germany. I wonder what's happening in these countries around the links that are being made between the need to shed light and tell the truth about the colonial past and also address racial violence, racial injustices in these different countries because of the size of the BLM protests in all of these countries also and the ways that they rose up not just in solidarity with what was happening in the U.S., but also brought attention to these longstanding racial struggles in their own countries. And so the idea was to bring together a group of folks from different disciplinary backgrounds as well as different national contexts to talk about these questions. So we had lawyers, we had academics, namely historians, a number of activists, obviously policymakers at the national level, at the supranational level, um, foundation, art historians, and so on. And from 12 countries, so we had 40 people from 12 countries, all talking about the question of reparations or the possibilities of rep for reparations. So we had these sort of cross-disciplinary panels, and then we had country-specific roundtables for France, the UK, Belgium, and Germany that were made up of a mix of activists, um, academics, and activists working on the racial question or the colonial past from different angles. And the makeup was different for each country, partly reflecting the situation in each country. And the idea was to say, okay, what's the state of the debate in each of these places before then bringing like 15 to 20 activists from like all of these folks from different countries together in a massive inter-country roundtable over Zoom. So you can imagine <laughs> what that was like. That's a lot of tiny squares on the screen. A lot of tiny squares, exactly. I took a couple screenshots. It was pretty momentous, but that gives you a general idea of what that symposium was. Was there a lot of consensus or did you have arguments and what was the atmosphere? Was it like everyone thinking the same thing or very different? Before I answer your question, I think I would like to add two short points on what Ama has just said. First of all, it was very important for us to have these different disciplines because we consider that approaching the question of racial inequalities through these different angles allow us to really apprehend the structural dimension of uh, racial inequalities, but also to see how, if we have to think about solution, if we have to think about what can be done to address 
and to imagine or envisage those solutions within these different disciplines. So it was a, a matter of gathering all these people from these different angles in order to uh, to construct collaboratively, I wouldn't say solutions, but uh, figuring out what justice could look like. And the second point I would like to say is that it was important for us to have some people, not only from Global North, so we have people from the U.S. and Europe, but also people from Africa, because we know that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement happened in the global north, but we have also protests in the global south. And it was important to understand how this question was apprehended in those contexts, as I think someone was saying that the colonization and the, the consequences have different, completely different flavor and continues to exist through different uh, ways. So really, it was uh, important for us to, uh, to have these different angles geographically. To answer your two questions, I think one of the main consensus was to say we need those kind of spaces. We have had all these protests uh, last summer. We haven't had a moment where these people came together and sit down and say, oh, what is happening in your country? What can we exchange in terms of strategies, in terms of approaches? So the existence of these spaces have been pointed out as very important. And I think that's uh, one of our main success for us. I was listening last night to the UK roundtable. You have people who were from uh, Uganda, Kenya, UK, and who were talking about the uh, the utility of using legal arena to challenge uh, the British states. So uh, how much is it important to, uh, to bring those struggles into the judicial space? To what extent does it cost resources to grassroots movements to bring those battles in the legal spaces? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was really interesting, actually, to see the ways that different participants' comments or reactions resonated with one another and then where the friction um, occurred. As Ivian said, one of the main points of consensus was the fact that, one, we need transnational spaces. Um, two was the, in each of the roundtables, what kept coming up was the fact that one of the core issues around racial justice was col colonial admisia as a strategy, as a political strategy, and as the sort of the thing that everyone is fighting, right? So the Germans are saying, we need people to just recognize that black Germanness is a thing, right? I mean, and then at the same time, you have the British saying, you know, the British like to think of themselves as post-racist, as not racist. We see race, we've been doing race, we, you know, we abolish slavery. This is a problem, right? The French, you know, so everyone kind of had the same. The Belgians were saying, oh, we need to recognize, you know, the past, right? Like all these things that happened that are. So that was also a consensus. And the fact that this was foundational educational practices and in all of these countries, and the fact that then intervention needed to happen at the educational level, also from, as one of the participants, Mabula Sumaro, said, from kindergarten up, right? It's not even higher education, talking about the very foundation of education. And as Irian said, the about the strategies, right? The pragmatic versus utopic, right? And, and the extent to which those two things can actually coexist. That kept coming up in different ways for different countries or for different participants. And what were some of the disconnects? Were there areas where people were just coming from such different lived experiences that they weren't understanding one another? I don't think it was that people were coming from different lived experiences. The disconnects came in terms of how to approach what's the solution, what's the right thing to do, right? So it's the pragmatic versus utopian. Yeah. So again, the kind of the structure of the conversations we had, you know, a first panel was talking about what does justice look like and or what should justice look like? And then we had one on um, past movements for reparation. And then we had one on opportunities at the supranational level before having the country roundtables. Maybe the starting point was a recognition of the need for this work. So there was no kind of conflict at that level. The question is like, well, what's what possibilities are there today? 
how do we proceed? What's the most effective way? I think that's where you had different approaches, which I think is healthy. You know, I don't think the goal is necessarily consensus. The goal, in a way, it's actually good to see the range of solutions that people are bringing up and then to see how they might inform one another and how they might help expand each, you know, for those who disagree, might perhaps expand the, each side's um, view or perspective of what's possible. What will you do to take this work forward? I mean, did you all agree to have another conference next year? Of course, you know, we love conferences. What's better than a conference? There's lots of things we want to do. One important piece of feedback we kept getting was how nice it was to have a conversation about race and racial justice that did not center the U.S. And not just in the, you know, we're, we're defying American imperialism, but because when the U.S. is centered, it's often used to dismiss the Europeanness also of racism, right, of structural racism and the fact that it's a European problem as much as an American problem. And so the fact that, you know, most of our speakers were, as Ivian mentioned, European or African, and we had a couple of folks from the Caribbean also, um, was really important. And I think for us, on the conference theme, right? If we're going to have a gathering like this, I think having Africa-centered conversations around racial justice in the colonial past, I think is really important. And those conversations are already happening on the continent, right? So then figuring out what role we might play, if any, in facilitating that. But then I think it was also thinking about how to move from the conference to actionable, you know, how to inform and support practice. And maybe Liliane, you can speak a little bit about what that might look like. We saw all these exchanges that were very fascinating. Of course, we can produce materials that can be used by activists in terms of uh, look at what kind of strategies are, are used in, in the UK, we'll look at what kind of strategies are used by French activists if they go to that institutions. So I think there's, uh, first of all, I mean, the short term, there's these kind of exchanges of actionable material. But on the longer term, we could think in terms of uh, bringing this knowledge to policymakers and see, hey, this is what activists and the scholars, the civil society has been doing and thinking and uh, the kind of uh, solution that have been put on the table. So how could you include that in your reforms? As you you may know, there, there was, for example, this uh, European summit against racism, 19th of March. We know that, the, for example, the space that the civil society had to uh, in this summit was uh, quite a... Limited. <laughs> yeah, quite limited. <laughs> So maybe it's also that kind of space that will be interesting to invest and to bring the, the exchange that happened in those spaces and say, this is what is happening in the civil society. I don't know if you also follow, but the, I think uh, President Macron wants to uh, organize a civil society summit with African civil society organizations. I would say it would be interesting to, uh, to bring those exchanges and this knowledge and these strategies at a level where policymakers can use that and transform it in uh, and policy reforms. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we are talking to Dr. Ama Edo and Dr. Liliane Uwamye about racial justice movements around the world. So, Ama, you were about to say something when I rudely interrupted you to do my midpoint spiel. No, I was just going to bounce off of what Liliane said. So Liliane was highlighting the institutional or the policy, the more policy-oriented next steps. And I was thinking also about the more education-focused next steps. And this illustrates or sort of reflects our two different institutional groundings. What I, I just cannot wait to start working on. <laughs> we just finished the conference a week ago and then had to like get into all this other work. So just aching and itching to get back to symposium or this project. 
But what I can't wait to get back to is thinking about designing a joint curriculum or joint curricula with these folks who were involved in the symposium. I mean, it was really the, what we kept hearing from folks is that it felt like, you know, kind of like a masterclass, like it was a week long workshop on these questions that centered Europe in a way that you don't usually see in these conversations with perspectives that reflected the range of fields around which the question of racial justice and um, the colonial past is being addressed. Right. So you have not only restitution of artifacts, right, which involves art historians, museums, scholars, right, but then you also have police violence and uh, these other, you know, structural manifestations of racism. Um, you have international development policy. What you have language and environmental concerns, right, about the legacies of slavery um, on on land and on bodies and so on. So you have a wide range of issues that when you hear, you're like, oh yes, of course, this is part of the story, but you might not automatically think of. And I think it's just so important to, and as an educator, to make this a a dedicated program of study um, and, you know, to have it be distributed across these range of institutions, across these range of fields, across these different countries. And so, yes, for me, developing a joint curriculum with folks who took part in symposium and others working on these questions would be just amazing. And to see it taught in institutions in various countries would be a dream. And, you know, you've talked about some of the policy steps, very specific things like restitution of artifacts and more general things where, you know, you, you can say what the goal is, but it's much harder to point to the specifics or people might disagree on the specifics, like exactly what, what do you do about development policy? What do you do about police violence? Are there good practices that this conference identified that you can go to policymakers and say, hey, look, this is a thing you can do. It has actually been done so we can demonstrate that it works, it helps, that, that came out of this, these conversations? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can start with one that was uh, very, <laughs> that struck me, is uh, with um, the language of education. Michel uh, Dudraff, it's, uh, a langu- linguist at MIT, who uh, was using the title of the panel, which was uh, what justice looks like, and he said, what justice sounds like. And he said, Oh, for children in Haiti who have been taught in French, whereas it's not their, uh, in their uh, mother tongue, maybe using Creole, that will help not only like improve their level of education, but I think in terms of how you imagine your educational system, how it can be useful and uh, it makes sense to use the language that the majority of the population is thinking and feeling. And for me, was it's something that is, uh, I won't say it's very easy to put in place, but I think it's uh, quite a a reform that a, a, a state can put in place. And I think it's it's something that has been uh, in many countries in Africa, I think in Arab countries that I have been uh, thinking about. Another one that comes to mind is uh, Siraj Rasul, who's a South African um, art historian, and but has been very involved in projects of um, restitution of artifacts to the continent and does work on museums uh, studies and so on at the University of the Western Cape. And he was talking about a project around the return of human remains that were taken from South Africa to Austria. He described this this process that ended up happening almost haphazardly um, between this the museum or institutions in South Africa and a museum in Austria, where it wasn't at the state level, but it was museum to museum, where because of the research that he'd been involved in in South Africa around these human remains, and the relationships that existed with um, this institution in Austria, they were able to make very clearly evident, right? Yeah, the underlying um, 
violence of these remains that were being kept in the Austrian Museum and to initiate a process for the return of the remains. And so I think for me, that was a really interesting example to see because he was saying what he described is actually a process that moved very fast compared to the temporality of everything else that everyone else, that the other panelists in this discussion about past reparations movements were describing, where everyone was saying, this is a process that takes decades, right? Um, Varane Shepard from the University of the West Indies was talking about the claims that folks from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, have been bringing to Britain since the 1950s, I think. The Rastafari folks brought um, the first set of claims, right? So everything seemed to unfold over decades. And at the same time, you had these like museum to museum things that could happen in a matter of years. So to me, that was really interesting. Then uh, Magali Besson, uh, who's a political philosopher at the Sorbonne, c'est ça? in Paris, talked about, I think you you can speak better to this than I can, Lily, as a legal person, but about the limits of the French judicial system for bringing claims to reparations and the EU human rights sort of apparatus as the next set of opportunities, given the shortcomings or the fact that the French national judicial system doesn't have affordances for this. Yeah, it's one argument that kept coming in different panels that to what extent the judicial apparatus is appropriate to address these issues. Many speakers presented, you know, the limits of the judicial apparatus because you have to, you have the, these issues of proofs, you have the, the problems of archives. Uh, how do you have access to them? I mean, there are a lot of limits if you want to use the judicial apparatus. One of the aspects that has been put as a not a solution, but a way to go forward is the transitional justice framework. And I think my colleague, Elisa Novit, uh, presented about, you know, this perspective in Belgium. I mean, to what extent it can be an opportunity, even if it has a lot of limits. Magali uh, Besson and also Pablo de Greff, that you, you may know, talk about, you know, the possibility of transformative justice that also has been using in the U.S. I think someone from Human Rights came and talked about all these different initiatives in the U.S. at the local level. So I think in terms of... Uh, in which arena these problems could be treated and could be addressed, we, we saw the limits of the judicial space and we saw the opportunity that offers the transitional justice framework, even though we know that there are still like a current limits and we, we have to be very careful not saying this is a solution. We know that it can be a trap. Amma, you've talked about decades of efforts and certainly a couple of years ago, there was, I remember listening to another podcast which was talking about how the Black Lives Matter movement was flagging somewhat. And yet there seems to have been an acceleration, which your conference was certainly part of. And we've seen this extreme extraordinary step in Belgium where you have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a, a European country which is full of colonial amnesia. I like that expression. What is behind this acceleration, do you think? Yes, this is what we were thinking a lot about um, Yeah, several months ago. I mean, I think there have been folks that have advanced sort of different ideas about what this might be due to, and partly the COVID moment, right? The pandemic, the fact that when George Floyd was killed and it was on video and it was circulating on social media, people were at home in front of their phones in the way that they wouldn't have been before, right? Because, you know, those of us who are Black, I think, and, and you know, there's a way that there's a kind of an awareness of this all the time. But I think for dominant culture, it was in the mainstream in a way that that hadn't been picked up before. And partly because of the, you know, maybe partly because of the pandemic moment. As has been mentioned, you know, the movements for racial justice in each of these countries have been going on for decades, right? Like the police violence has been an issue in France and Belgium and all these countries also. The size of the George Floyd 
protests in the U.S. and then the whatever it is that made it that made people um, pay attention to that more. And I don't know. I mean, I don't have a good answer to your question. I think what was clear to me is that it resonated in different ways with both black or racial minorities in different countries and with with white people, right, with the dominant um, population and or the majority population in these countries. But I think what was really interesting is the way that activists in the European countries um, connected their struggles to the American struggle, right? So to say, we want justice for George Floyd and we want justice pour Adama in France, right? It was very smart strategically to say, and it's not only smart, but true to say that we are fighting the same thing. We are fighting structural racism. We're fighting global white supremacy, right? And the moment in which the protests were happening, because we were all kind of captive in some form or another, um, I think it just picked up. But I don't, I mean, I don't want to say it just picked up because there's nothing accidental about it, right? People have been working at this for decades. Um, But I think there was a a kind of confluence of circumstances that really amplified the actions that were happening in the U.S. and then in across different European cities. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're describing is this sort of international intersectionality and acceptance of the international intersectionality, which makes me want to ask about other kinds of intersectionalities, right? These questions of other oppressed groups, because we've been talking about racial justice. But how much did your conversation at this conference and your conversations in general touch upon, you know, women, um, about class issues, about uh, sexual preference, all the other, all the other things that lead people to be oppressed with different histories and different stories, but with some of the same effects. Yeah, great question. I mean, the first person that comes to mind for me is Rosebel Kagumire, who is a Ugandan journalist and activist um, and editor of the platform African Feminism, and she was part of the UK Roundtable and then the the, the intercountry um, session. I'm thinking of all these other things all these people said, but I'll just start with Roosevelt. And her point was, um, you know, she brought forward the work of Professor Silvia Tamale at uh, Makerere University at Uganda, who published maybe a couple of years ago, book um, Decolonization and Afrofeminism or Afrofeminism and Decolonization. And where the point is that, you know, colonialism did not impact men and women the same, right? And so there's a need to bring feminist lens to um, understanding and reading the colonial project and to engaging, envisioning um, the decolonization project. You know, so that was certainly part of the conversation um, or that that's something that Rosebaugh brought to the conversation, as did our keynote speaker, um, Diepo Lopeco, who um, is a South African scholar also and who does feminist economics, to highlight the disproportionate impact of imperialism on black and brown women across the world across time also. It wasn't just about bringing to the fore the fact that, yes, we have to consider the differential impact on women, but that the interventions also do need to um, take into account the intersectionality of the situation. Yes, I think one important element that uh, also came out of this conference on this aspect of intersectionality is about no class, especially when we think about in which spaces this struggle are going to be brought. So if we th- think about using a law, I, I mean, I keep coming at the same thing, but I think it's also <laughs> my role. So if you think about using a judicial space or legal instruments, maybe you might lose people 
behind because no, not everyone is able to handle these uh, legal arguments or legal uh, strategies. We have to be careful in the way the struggles are constructed of not focusing or, or highlighting uh, the legal strategies because we it, there is a, a risk of letting some people behind of just making the movement an elite, uh, elite movement. That's something that keeps coming in the, in the conversation. This is really fascinating. I, I am so sad to say that we're kind of at our time limit. I feel like um, there's so much more that I can learn from you and that our listeners can learn, more importantly. But, uh, you know, I think the lesson here is that we do need to be integrating all of this into all of our work, right? That part of the conversation, it's about education, it's about policy, but it's also about making sure that we look at the world through these lenses. So to close, I'm going to say that you can follow uh, Liliane and her work on Twitter. She's at UMU. B-Y-E-Y-I-1-1. And you can also follow Ama. She is at A-M-A-H underscore E-D-O-H. You can also learn more about their project and the conference by going to the Avocat Sans Frontier website, which is asf.be. Crisis Group uh, has also covered some of the unrest in the United States, although not to date in Europe. Uh, we did talk to Erica Marat in our podcast episode on February 16th about the protests that spread in Central Asia, Russia and Belarus. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Um, Crisis Group's at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope, H-U-G-H underscore P-O-P-E. I'm at Olya Oliker, O-L-Y-A, O-L-I-K-E-R. And check us out on Facebook and Instagram where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. And do feel free to tweet at us about what you like or don't like in the podcast. We will pay attention to any requests for things to do and we are listening. So also if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating uh, and a review as well. And War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check it out and listen to a few of the others. With a big thanks to producers Bull Media and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Zeruhun Asifa and Patricia Alonso, who make sure that Olia and I know what we're doing every time we record one of these. I will draw this to a close. Thank you, Ama, so much. Thank you, Lillian, so much for joining us. Uh, I don't know if you have any final words uh, before we sign off. I'll say, well, thank you for having us. And I think it's wonderful that Crisis Group is taking up these questions also um, and recognizing it as a core issue, a core global issue of concern. So thank you for, for giving us a chance to share our work. Yes, uh, thank you very much. And um, let's hope that it's uh, just the beginning of a long conversation. Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners, who I hope will be part of this conversation. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be talking to you again in two weeks. And goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.